So uh, tonight, I'd like to speak about um, seeing things clearly. Seeing things clearly. Usually after the first uh, day or so, uh, with all the turmoil that uh, is involved in just accommodating our bodies to a still posture, given the tidal wave of activity and events and that we usually live with, we, um, the wave hits the shore on that first day or two with uh, quite a tumultuous uh, splash. And as I was mentioning last night, oftentimes there are uh, a variety of uh, screams that come out of that tidal wave. And uh, in the form of uh, sleepiness and restlessness and doubting and anger, frustration, um, annoyance, all of the different patterns and conditions that we live with. And uh, we have to sort of pick our way through all those things to figure out what this meditation is about. What is, what is this? What are we doing here? Given what we're being hit with. And is our meditation working or failing when all these different components are arising. Well, let me say um, right off that the meditation is working perfectly. That the meditation is the container for all of these things to be happening. It really is not going to make the conditions any different for them to happen. So, the fact that you are sleepy, the fact that you are restless, the fact that you are um, in some inner agony is not the fault of the meditation practice, although it may well be blamed for it because we're used to blaming. But all it's doing is highlighting that which is occurring. It's showing us, allowing us the opportunity to see the usual, normal, and everyday working of the mind. That we're too, um, we spend too much time trying to distract ourselves from and away from because it's unpleasant. It's unpleasant. So we're going to talk tonight about the, uh, the way things are. The way things are. And what meditation is showing us is the way things are. That's all it's doing. There's no real secrets in this. It's just a microscope or telescope, depending upon which way you want to think of it. And it's just showing us, in some magnified form, what we live with every single day. the way things are. You know, it's very interesting to let that phrase, the way things are, sort of resonate with us. Because how how are things? 
I mean, I think I know the way things are. Most people would say on the street, I hate my husband and I don't have enough money and I hate my job and that's the way things are. And so uh, the phrase, as we use it spiritually, means a little bit different than that. Fact is that uh, we very rarely see things the way they are. We normally translate the things the way we want them to be. And uh, those two are very, very different. You see, uh, when when you work with, um, uh, for, as some of us do in this room, work with uh, death and dying patients, well, I mean, it, death is the way things are. I mean, I, you, you learn to live with that, which I always find is, shouldn't be too shocked, but it's always kind of amazing to me that people don't consider that they're going to die sometimes, sometime or other. And uh, yet I find uh, lots of people sort of uh, avoiding that subject or not wanting to even consider it well into their 50, 60, 70 years. As if somehow that event is going to pass them by as a mistake. As a matter of fact, I had a patient once, and I probably told this story, I t- you all have been around with so many of my retreats that there are very few stories. I have to go out and collect more or something. But, um, I worked with a, uh, a patient who was 97 years old. This is the fact. And uh, she was dying. And um, she was in the last phases of her terminal illness. And she looked up at me. And she said, um, why me? Now, is that woman living with the way things are? <laughs> so, we always get hit by surprises when we close our eyes down to the way things are. You see, I mean, just take death, for instance. Let's just talk about it a little bit. If people are not too uncomfortable with that subject. I mean, is death fair? Well, no. I mean, it, big fish shouldn't eat little fish, should they? And children shouldn't die before their parents. That's not fair. It's not fair to the parent. It's not fair to the child. Um, the, if you're good, if you're kind of heart, you shouldn't die before the criminal. Criminal should die first, right? That would be... That would be fair. But then you look at what death does and suddenly you see that fairness isn't in the equation. Right? So fairness must be our idea rather than the way things are. Or else the world would work according to that law. And it doesn't. So if the world doesn't work according to that law, then it must be human-made. And if it's human-made, it must be suspect. Because 
if it's human-made, we're going to start comparing ourselves with that human-made law. We're going to use it as some standard of ethics, like you're fair and you're not, and I'm righteous, and I shouldn't be, you shouldn't do this to me, and all the other things that we constantly live with. Now what we're doing here in the meditation is going through the human-made laws, which is all the workings of our minds, all the judgments that we have, all the content that we have when we look out and see somebody wiggling and they're supposed to be quiet, or that we're, um, you know, it's raining on a weekend when we're supposed to have meditation outdoor walking and it's not doing what I'm supposed to be doing. All of the imagination, the imagery that we paint the world with, that's what we're looking through in meditation, to touch the actual, to touch the way things are, prior to our imagining about them, prior to our elaboration, prior to our expounding upon them in human-made terms. We have need pain. And that's the fact. That's the way it is. There is pain in the knee. But we look through that fact to all of the... Well, why do I have... I don't want pain. I mean, I didn't want to come here and have knee pain. That's not what this meditation is about. It's about tranquility, calmness. (laughs) So I don't like this thing, you see. On and on. On and on it goes. But the fact, there's the fact. And then we have the theory. The theory of what we want it to be and the fact of what it is. And those don't fit together. So we suffer in accordance to our theory about how we want it to be, not according to the fact of how it is. And Sherlock Holmes said, I draw my... (laughs) I draw my... um, quotes from a lot of different sources. He said, if the theory doesn't fit the fact, throw away the theory. Because the fact points towards the truth, not your theory. So if the theory of how we live, the way we want it to live, isn't according to the fact of the way it is, then we should readjust the way we are and live in harmony with the fact not with the theory. Doesn't that make logical sense? Somehow it just seems like yes to me. (laughs) Or else we're going to be butting our heads up continually against the walls of our imagination. The constant... Because it ain't going to happen that way. It's not going to turn out that way. Death is going to occur. It's going to happen. You feel the stillness? My God, is it going to, it's going to happen? Yes, <laughs> it's going to happen. You see, I, the Buddha, some 2,500 years ago, it is said in the stories that his father kept him in a kind of a princely castle his whole life, and he was surrounded by beautiful things, beautiful objects. When somebody 
when one of the fair maidens got a little old, they'd whisk her away somewhere and bring in a young fair maiden. So he was always being hit by uh, youth and, you know, nothing rotten or or that was showing any sense of destruction or old age. or Everything was kept out of his view. I think, I think he got tired of it. He says, now wait a minute, is this the way things are? He said, he must have. This is my my uh, own description of the event, but at some point he must have said, I'm going outside these walls. I, something's wrong here. I'm going outside these walls and seeing how things are. So he goes out in his chariot and he sees, it said, sickness, old age, and death. Suddenly so he says, my God. And he asks his charioteer, he says, is this the way things are? Do all people get old, sick, and die? And when he heard that that was, he said, my, uh, this is something I need to attend to. Now you see, 2,500 years later, we have built a culture that's inside of a princely castle. We have probably the best affluence that we will ever know or our children will know. As a matter of fact, I read somewhere that the uh, decades of the 50s and 60s will are the highest per capita affluence that uh, any nation in any other time in history or in the future will ever know because of the consumption of resources that we had available to us then that we will never have again. So that was it. <laughs> <laughs> Did you enjoy yourself? <laughs> now, we're faced with a downslope. And we have science doing everything it's possible to uh, produce, you know, and uh, satisfy our external needs. I, my brother, who is a... Um, computer scientist one of, he's really in it you know he's like a PhD and all that kind of stuff and he actually uh, he's one of the pioneers and he, he's really a, in there he invented uh, I don't know how you invent this stuff so that's how far away I am but he invented uh, how you put the uh, icons on screen you know so when you tap a face it does something you know opens up or whatever he invented how to do that. and uh, So he's like a really a pioneer. In any case, um, he was telling me, and this was about, oh, 10, 20 years ago, he was telling me about all the things about computers that are happening now. And he was saying, 20 years ago, that we'll have, this is long before any of this was out, that we'll have uh, computers at desks for each one of us and that we'll be able to access libraries and be able to there'll be an international uh, network all laced together and I mean, he was just he was and I, I was listening fascinated and he said that will end our problems <laughs> and he believed it and he really believed that he was working in a way that would solve the human condition um, 
Now, I was just getting started in Dharma back then, but it felt a little bit strange. I didn't argue with him because he always, he has more, um, uh, he can he can beat me in almost any argument that we <laughs> engage in. <laughs> but I didn't I didn't go along with him. I just I saved myself the problem of actually arguing with him. But in any case, 20 years later, we it's all unfolded just as he said it would. But what has it done to our loneliness? What has it done to our sense of self-despair? To our inward anguish and pain? We've been working and working and working on the external to set the right conditions So that we can live in harmony and peace with the way things are. And we try to do that externally. Science tries to create the optimum strategies for that, tries to discover the laws so that we can uh, control those laws and set external conditions and standards so that things will be happy. Now, how, mu- how much proof do we need? We've gone through the two most affluent decades, the computer revolution and science, etc., etc. How much more do we? How much more of this strategy do we have to employ before we give up on it? Well, I think the strategy is imploding as we speak because. The latest issue of Time magazine has on its cover Buddhism, American Buddhism. You see, the Buddha's come out of his castle. He's left his homeland. He's gone out now. We are, we've seen old age, death, and dying, and we know that the castle walls won't protect us any longer from those facts. So now we're stepping out. We are really mimicking the history of the tradition of religion. And what do we step out to? We step away from our from our emphasis on pleasure-seeking, really, from our emphasis on control, established control, from our emphasis on uh, constructing the external conditions as a prerequisite for our internal happiness. And we are stepping out from seeing, we're stepping into seeing things the way they are, in actual fact. 
And it's been a long time coming. And it will go on now, probably in increasing geometric proportions, because once it catches on, I think it becomes like a snowball. And in this article, it's saying that there are now 100,000 practicing Buddhists in the United States. That's an amazing... Now, it doesn't mean you can't be a practicing Christian or a practicing Hindu or practicing anything else and come to the same determination, the same... the same... But you have to practice something. You have to touch the fabric of our experience. We have to step behind the mind's illusion, behind what the mind is saying, behind the imaginary, um, the imaginary into the real. As we sit here on our cushions today, we follow our breath and then suddenly our mind carries us away. We come back to the breath, we stay one or two breaths and the mind takes us away. Now, do we think that that's just happening here and that at home I can really focus and concentrate on my golf swing? Do we really believe that? I mean, we have defined what we're doing here is focusing on the breath and we see how hard it's to do. Take us out of this context, put us at home, and what do you think happens to even those momentary glimpses of being able to focus? They're almost non-existent. So this meditation is showing us how much we time we spend in the description of events away from the actual event itself. You see, there's an event, right? Something comes in through our senses and it's experienced. And then from that experience comes the elaboration of that experience through words, recognition, elaboration. And we just spin off like that. And what we're doing here for this single day is to go leap across all those words and touch the experience again. But we're so used to writing that word usage that we just get whisked away again every time we come back. We come back and... And it's because we have u- we're used to living with the description of what is occurring rather than what's actually occurring, which is the way things are. The description of what is being said is enormously different than the actual fact. For instance, just put your hand down on the floor, be it hard or soft, and just feel what that feels like. Now, if you were describing that to somebody, what would you say? It's hard or it's soft or you, you, you probably classify it in a single word. Now feel the difference between what you would say about it and the experience of what it is. You see, that's the difference. In a single instant, you can see immediately 
that that is an undescribable thing right there. And then what I say to you, if we were outside this retreat, the floor was very hard. Immediately, you would have an idea of what that hardness was in relationship to that experience. You would then project on to what that would have, must have been like to be sitting on a hard floor for a week. And that's what we do every single moment with everything that occurs in terms of our experience. We give it self-definition or we give it a definition that we have lived with in the past and we fix it. We fix it according to that past experience and we hold it in place, fixed. And what do we do when we do that? We deny one of the ways that things are, and that is that they are in flux and change, that they are in transition. Everything is in transition. Everything is in transition. Life is in transition to death. From the moment we are born, we're in transition. When we stood at the door there and they break, many of you were feeling the breeze come in. You could feel the grasses move in the wind and the clouds scurrying across the sky. You could feel the dark begin in the, um, in the uh, intermediate times between daylight and dark. The dusk of the night start to send. Perhaps some of you heard different birds begin to come out, different kinds of wildlife begin to come out in the dark as opposed to the, the daylight. Now, how can we stand in the door like that and be present to that sort of variety and that sort of change and that sort of transition and think that the person who is standing there is fixed? That the person who is standing there, the personhood who is watching these events is somehow outside of the laws that govern the whole world, all of life. First of all, it's arrogant, extraordinarily arrogant. And secondly, it's completely false. How could it be? How could it be that I am part of life? I mean, given, <laughs> I don't care what religion you come from, you're part of life, right? I mean, I'll just, we have to give, <laughs> we have to agree on something. Let's agree on that. We're all part of life. So the same laws that operate in life external have to be operating in me. Have to. You think there's a second set of laws that operate the working of this life as opposed to that life? So when I begin to understand the experience, the laws that determine my external experience, I want to see if my internal experience is also that way. So I look within. And what do I see? I see that my emotions are constantly in movement and flux. It's, it's like standing out in front of that sky tonight. That there are cascading thoughts. There's a stream of feeling and sensation throughout the body. 
The winds of circumstance inwardly are changing and mixing. Sometimes there's an outpouring of grief and loss. Other times there's the joy of a full sun in our heart. What we're describing are the weather, the internal weather patterns. And we think that we are healthy. We've been sick, but that health is somehow our birthright. And that illness is not. That somehow, if we ever have everything lined up, we'll be healthy and happy. And everything will be pleasant. But that's not the way things are. The question really becomes, are we willing to participate in life as it is, as it really is. Both externally, it's raining. We didn't plan it this weekend. Nobody would have foreseen it, and well, maybe we foresaw it, but nobody would have wanted it necessarily. I live with it all the time. But it's the way it is. Now, if we begrudge that fact, if we hold on to the idea which is fixed, right? The idea that it should be sunny. It would be much better if this were sunny. If I hold on to that idea, which is fixed, in relationship to the fact which is changing, that fixed idea is going to come back and haunt me. The Buddha said, if you don't, if someone who denies the changing natures of things is like somebody who holds on to the wheel of an ox cart as it's turning, Wonk, 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 wonk. It's not long before that ox cart runs over our head. So the whole practice and all of its manifestation and beauty is really an adjustment. It's really an alignment. It's an allowance. It's an opening up. It's a freeing of our sense of control and need to make everything go according to the way I want it to go. It's a stepping out of all of being in the shell of a peanut. Out to all of this. It's a willingness to begin to accommodate and to harmonize with the laws that are obvious. In life, internal and external. It's a willingness to begin to accommodate and to harmonize with the laws that are obvious in life, internal and external. And we may not want it to be that way, and most of us wouldn't wish it on anyone else, but there is depth and understanding and allowing.
and coming to greater and greater acceptance of that. And we started the weekend together with that sense of acceptance, that essential quality of acceptance. Acceptance, you see? The acceptance is not just some spiritual word that I'll try. It's everything. It's in virtually every attitude that we face, whatever. Allowance. I, I actually like allowance better than acceptance because what you accept, you can reject. So it's on a continuum. But when you allow, I, mean, I suppose you can disallow, but the point is that you're open to everything, that there is a opening up, a flexibility. I was uh, with a patient one time, and uh, the woman uh, was um, in the hospital uh, diagnosed with end-stage lymphoma when her husband was at home dying with hospice care uh, at the same time. So she had to go in the hospital, she gets a diagnosis. Um, and I was involved with the husband through the hospice, and I was trying to contact the wife as, as a social worker, only to find out that she was also terminally ill and had less time than her husband had on our service. So we were taking care of both of them. And anyway, I went in and I saw her in the hospital, and, I mean, you can imagine what you would be like if everything in your world was being taken away and she was uh, she had found a cave in the deepest recesses of her consciousness that is the most accurate explanation description I can give of, of, of her of her I mean she was way back in there and I thought whoa I'm never going to reach this woman There's, I mean I you know, you try and you just go back and you just can't touch her. I mean, she was so much in pain. And I said to her, I said, you know, what, what keeps you alive anymore, Jane? What, what gives you purpose? What gives you any kind of meaning? And she said, there's only two things in her life now that, uh, that mean anything to her, to have any, um, that she at all responds to. One is uh, her daughter, and the other is um, her, uh, her spiritual practices. And I said, you know, Jane, nobody would have wished this illness on you or your husband, but I must say that you have come to a deeper understanding of the essential quality of life that almost anyone else does who hasn't been put through this kind of pain. Because what you've just told me is that for you, life was about, is about love, love for your daughter, and your spiritual growth. And how many of us die with that kind of understanding? Not very many. And I said that probably this would not have occurred had you not gone through the depth of pain that you're now experiencing. See, she came out of the shell through circumstances, through events. And she touched something. And she went scurrying away from it 
But something had left its mark. Something had touched her. Something had... Everything else was cold to her. Nothing else was worse, had any kind of pleasurable quality to it. And eventually she came out much more totally and really participated in the care of her husband until she got too ill and then her daughter came in and cared for her. You see, when we actually see things the way they are, when we actually touch the experience of life, it makes a mark on us. It etches itself. It does something to us. And we can never forget that. We can go back again into the shell. But it has had its effect. It has done something. This is called insight. What we are doing here is insight meditation. That's the mark, the etch. The Buddha said that one instant of insight is worth 10,000 lifetimes of doing good services. Because it's that instant of insight that really changes who we are. But we have to be willing to cross over the imagination into the fact We have to be willing to give up the theory and move into the fact. We have to be willing to let go of our thinking and touch the experience. I'm saying the same things. We have to let go of our mind and touch our hearts. We have to be willing to allow the laws that govern all of life to affect us. We have to be willing to change. That's really the problem. We think we can stand at that door, look out on the field, feel the wind, the clouds, the rain, the swirling, the falling night, turn around and have absolutely nothing change in us at all. Go through life completely static. I mean, think of the friends that you've last met a week, two weeks, a year ago, don't you hold them in consciousness as some, just the way you remember them? The next time you see them, you will evaluate what you see them being now to what you remember them to be. Oh, you've gotten older. What do you expect? <laughs> you look just the same as you did when you were born. I just can't believe it. I haven't put on a pound. <laughs> so we're sitting here and we're crossing over that boundary. The boundary of what we would like, and, and there's a great deal of sadness, a great deal of grief here, because we're crossing over the boundary of what we wish life was, which is a deep and profound love. It has to do with how we, the things that we love in life. We cross over that boundary, over that hill, and it, it's enormously, you know, that's why there's so much grief in, 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 in this work. Because we, nobody wants anyone to die. 
It'd be a hell of a mess if nobody died. But nobody wants it to happen. Nobody wishes death. Well, few people do. But that's what grief is. Grief is really, and this is not to say that grief is wrong in any way, but it's really having denied the law of change. It's beginning to realign ourselves with what has taken place. And what we have to die to is all the ways that we have tried to hold life steady and static. So we die to the memories of how it was to come to terms with how it is. And that's what grief is. It's a readjustment of our whole fabric. It's a lesson, really. It's a lesson of the of just what this talk is about, of seeing things the way they are. And we constantly are coming up against, time and time again in this work, our inward judgments and criticisms and self-dislike and unworthiness and anger And what we have done in the past is that we have sectioned those things off from ourselves in some kind of jigsaw-puzzled way, taking a piece out and put it outside the frame, have this big hole in our jigsaw puzzle, but we'd rather have the hole in the puzzle than deal with the piece. And now... We're bringing all the pieces back into the frame. The anger, the passion, the lust, the unworthiness, the criticism, all of that. Because that's the way things are. Because that's the way we are. To pretend that we're not doesn't do anything except create a big hole. A big hole of loneliness, a big hole of suffering. So we have to bring the peace back in, and we have to befriend it. We have to understand it. We have to bring it back in. I don't want to live with a hole. It's like Dick Tracy. Remember those cartoons? But you shot a hole in Dick. He walk around with a big hole in his head from the. You just walk around <laughs> a bunch of Dick Tracy's around here. So we begin to heal to all of that because nobody wants it. I mean, I would rather not have anger, so I'd just soon take that away. But the fact is, that's it. That's what I've got to deal with. That's my lot in life. That's what I've been dealt. The hand. That's it. I can't cheat. There's no cheating. Card under the table doesn't work. This is it. <laughs> and we got to bid everything on it because this is a hand. Got all of it, all the everything. That's it. House, kids, family, that's it. It's on the table. That's all we've got. And that's what we're doing here. That's it. That's what every one of us are doing here. 
dealing with the hands that we were played. The agonies, the screams, all of the things that will happen in the course of this weekend or week is the hand that you were played. Let us at least change the attitude in which we address and look at that hand. Let us at least orient ourselves in the right direction. It doesn't mean it's going to be easy. It's not going to be easy. It's going to be hard work. But let us at least have some appreciation for the game that we're playing. Some joy. It's not so bad. Your anger isn't so bad. It's not so much worse than my anger or anyone else's anger. Not so bad. And then we can smile a little bit and we can all play together and that's what all this is about. We're all playing together. I like company in this. It's hard work. I just soon have people around. Help me out a little bit. Talk to me. Give me reassurance. Hang out in groups. Okay. And that's what we're doing, coming to the way things are. So big fish eat small fish. I don't like it. i got to deal with it. It's in my hands, in the deck. Death is in that deck. It's all in that deck. My knee pain is in that deck. my fear, my childhood, all of my history. Oh my God, I don't want that deck. Say it. This, no, no not that thing. <laughs> it's there. And this beautifully simple practice. This enormously when you just feel the sublime nature of the Dharma, all you have to do is to let go, to let be. That's it. Just let it be, just as it is. Things just the way they are. Can we sit for a minute or two? Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.